our time of corporate prayer this morning, uh, for our time of corporate prayer, the focus is on the persecuted church. Uh, just recently, I actually saw a, a news headline in, in an article talking about Christians who had been beheaded in another part of the world. And there are our brothers and sisters around the world who are facing serious persecution, death, and suffering, uh, and terrible trials. And so we want to remember them in our, in our prayers. They are our family. Uh, we are one with them in Christ. Uh, and so to, to focus our prayers, I want us to consider Revelation chapter 2, verse 8 and following, where Jesus speaks to his church in Smyrna encouraging them uh, to remain faithful in the midst of suffering and trials. These are the words of him who is the first and the last who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten, ten days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. He who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you praising you for your sovereignty and your power over all things. And yet we come to you crying out for help for our brothers and sisters around the world who are suffering for your name, who are suffering for the sake of Christ and the gospel. And we pray that you would come to their aid. We pray that you would remind them of truths from your word remind them of your your sovereignty that you are in control of all things that nothing can touch them except what you allow ultimately remind them of your sovereignty remind them of your care for them your care for your people that you are not only sovereign but that you are good remind them that they that you hear their prayers that you see their tears and that you will rescue them. And we pray that you would give them strength. Remind them of your sustaining hand. That they can remain faithful by the strength that you provide. By the grace that you provide. We pray that you would either deliver them from their suffering. Or strengthen them to endure it. That they might faithfully proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord even in the face of suffering and death. And Lord, we pray that you would help us uh, here in America, us who are believers, that you would help us to remember our brothers and sisters in prayer regularly and to recognize the, the, the comforts that we have, to recognize the freedoms that we have, that we might take full advantage of those in being all the more faithful in proclaiming Christ, who saves sinners. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would open your Bibles in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And this morning we'll be looking at verses 18 to 23. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 18 to 23. Well, I came to the conclusion 
a few weeks ago, well, a couple of weeks ago, but really it's a conclusion all of us should have come to many years ago as we observe politics in particular. If you want to learn how to apologize, never look to a politician as your model. Now, that's a general statement. Maybe some can apologize. But, in general, politicians never have and never will know how to properly apologize. There are exceptions, but I think for the most part it's true. Don't look to a politician as a model for how to say you're sorry. And why is that? Well, it's because giving a true and humble apology is directly opposed to the kind of look they're going for. What kind of look is that? When you apologize, really in our world's eyes, in the world's eyes, you have to become kind of like a fool. You look kind of foolish and a politician never wants to look foolish. They want to look strong and capable without any faults or stains in their character. And if they have to apologize, it shows that they have some flaws, shows that they have done things wrong or said things wrong. In fact, it might even make them look like a fool. In contrast, if you do want to know how to apologize, you, you look at humble leaders. You look at humble believers. A true and humble apology doesn't say, I'm sorry, but. It doesn't say, I'm sorry if I offended you. It simply says, I am sorry I was wrong. Will you forgive me? No excuses. It doesn't belittle or downplay the, the, the sin or the fault. And it doesn't blame anyone else but the person who is apologizing. But we can't get off so easily pointing at our politicians, can we? Do you have a hard time apologizing? A real and sincere apology without any ifs, ands, or buts? It's difficult. You have to swallow your pride. And so if, you're, if you have a huge ego, you're not going to be able to swallow it and simply say, I'm sorry. Turns out we have just as difficult a time as they do in issuing real apologies because it requires genuine humility. It requires a willingness in some sense to be seen as a fool, as the offender rather than the one offended, as the sinner rather than the one sinned against. But contrary to our own natural inclinations and contrary to the the values of our culture, humility is our only path to that which is truly wisdom. In God's economy, humility is prized and pride will one day have a great and terrible fall. In our passage for this morning, Paul warns the Corinthians about being self-deceived. In contrast to how their wisdom pursues wisdom, he insists that if they want to truly become wise, they must become fools. In other words, they need to humble themselves and recognize how little it is they really know. Only then will they begin to become wise. And in their wisdom, they'll now be able to see things more clearly. In particular, they'll now be able to see why God has given them the leaders that God has given them, and why God has blessed them the way that they have with a variety of resources for their growth and maturity in Christ. For in his generosity, he has given, Paul says, all things for our benefit, 
for our maturity in Christ, for our growth in Him. And He has made us His very own possession. So look at our text with me. 1 Corinthians three eighteen to 23 Do not deceive yourselves. If any of you think you are wise by the standards of this age, you should become fools so that you may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile. So then, no more boasting about human leaders. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours and you are of Christ and Christ is of God. Dear Father, we pray that you would bless the reading and preaching of your word this morning for the glory of your name and for the good of your church. Moved by your spirit to convict our hearts of sin and to grow us, to feed us, to nourish us by the gospel of Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Our three headings for this morning are the path of true wisdom, the possession of all things, and the position of believers. The path of true wisdom, the possession of all things, and the position of believers. Now what, let's remember what's going on here in the Corinthian church. In the few years since Paul has left Corinth, the Christians have failed to mature in the way they should have. Some of this was due to poor teaching. Some of it was due to their own lack of initiative, their own negligence in pursuing Christ. Instead, they've languished in the culture. They've really accommodated themselves to the culture and become like the culture rather than standing in stark contrast to it. And this was ripping the church apart at the seams. Paul began talking about this contrast between the world's wisdom and God's wisdom in chapter 1. And he continues through chapter 4, this theme of God's wisdom and the world's wisdom. That should be a clue to us how important this concept is. How important it is that our minds are conformed to that of Christ rather than conformed to the culture around us. And here in verses 18 to 23, Paul shows us yet again how the world's wisdom is diametrically opposed to God's wisdom. And he shows how God's wisdom enables us to see human leaders in indeed all things for what they are. How God's wisdom enables us to see that he has provided all things for our good. But we begin with Paul's instructions for getting true wisdom. Here's our first heading then, the path of true wisdom. Paul warns his readers about the danger of, of self-deception. Do not deceive yourselves, he says. And isn't this a warning that we all need? Isn't there a danger for all of us to be deceived about who we are, about perhaps our giftedness, or about our talents, or our capacities? I've cited for you before something called the Dunning-Kruger effect. And it's basically, it's a tendency of low-ability uh, individuals to assess themselves as much more competent than they really are. The research suggests the same about high-ability individuals. They tend to underestimate their own capacity. And even now, think about it, even now, aren't you overestimating yourself, thinking, well, I must be one of those high-ability people, and I underestimate my competencies. 
But this is true in the spiritual realm as well. You might tend to think you're smarter, more, more knowledgeable about Christian doctrine, or more religious, or more mature in the Christian faith than others. Or maybe you think you're none of those things, but at least you are humbler than everyone else. Well, the Corinthians were overestimating their own wisdom. They thought they were really wise. And the reason they thought that they were really wise, the reason they were overestimating themselves is because they were using the metrics of the world rather than the metrics that God uses. They were pursuing the wisdom of the world in order to get ahead, in order to become great. But this caused them to lag behind in that which is truly wisdom, the wisdom which comes from God. Instead, Paul says, the path to true wisdom is becoming a fool. The rest of verse 18. If any of you thinks you are wise by the standards of this age, you should become fools so that you may become wise. Instead of puffing themselves up about how much they, they knew or how much their leader, their particular leader knew or how great they were and their leaders were, they ought to become foolish in the eyes of the world. Now, I think this is referring uh, mainly to two things. First, becoming a fool according to the world's metric means that you prize the ultimate expression of God's wisdom, which is what? It is the cross of Christ. It is Christ crucified for sinners. This is the supreme expression of God's wisdom, which the world thinks is absolutely foolish. So to become a fool according to the world's metrics means that you prize this above all things, that you prize Christ crucified for sinners above all things. This is what Paul has been talking about over the last couple of chapters. The world's wisdom is expressed in power, in greatness, in knowledge. But God's wisdom, a mystery which has been revealed, the humble, the weak, Christ crucified for sinners. Place this at the center of your life and you will be seen as a fool by the world. Second, becoming a fool according to the world's metrics means that you pursue humility rather than greatness according to the world's measures. Rather than pride, you pursue humility. And this is directly related to prizing Christ above all things. For when you consider who Christ is and what He has done, you are moved to humble dependence upon Christ for life and breath and salvation. For all things, you are dependent upon Christ. Christ is the image of the invisible God. He was with God in all eternity. He is God He's the second person of the eternal God. By him, all things were created. And yet the son humbled himself and became a human. He humbled himself and became a servant. He humbled himself to the point of suffering. He humbled himself to the point of death, even the shameful death on a cross. And he did this for you and for me and anyone who will call on his name. And how can anyone consider that Christ and still be filled with pride? How could you possibly be self-deceived when you consider Christ and his crucifixion? 
True wisdom is found in humility. And humility is found not ultimately in, you know, we might think of it in morbid introspection and finding out how bad we really are. But really true humility is found in a joyful examination of Christ and all his benefits. Christ and his work for us. So Paul encourages the Corinthians to think less of themselves and their worldly wisdom and to think more of Christ in the wisdom of humility. And he quotes a couple of Old Testament passages to show why they must become fools according to this age if they are to be wise. Job 5.13, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And Psalm 94.11, the Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile. So by these texts, he shows that All those who manipulate and scheme by their own wisdom in the pride of their own wisdom will be held to account. And all those who are arrogant and self-sufficient because they think they have what it takes, they think that they are enough, they are but a breath. Their thoughts will come to nothing just as they will come to nothing. So then Paul says, no more boasting about human leaders. Stop it. Since we tend to deceive ourselves about our own greatness and abilities, and since all people are fallible, and all the wise of this world will come to nothing along with their thoughts and so-called wisdom, stop boasting about human leaders. For Paul says, for, for Paul says, they haven't been given to you that you might glory in them, that you might kind of put them up on a pedestal and look to them for your for your uh, own joy, for your own progress, or boast in them. Rather, they have been given to you for your own benefit in Christ, your own well-being in Christ. So this leads to our second heading, the possession of all things. The Corinthians had taken something that was meant for their benefit, namely godly and faithful teachers, and they had turned them into idols. That's what it means to to boast in something, to glory in something, to prize it, to have your joy ultimately in that thing. They were glorying in their earthly leaders. You see, idolatry isn't simply taking bad things and setting them up as the things that you worship. Idolatry is also taking good things, good gifts from God, and setting them up as idols, as those things you look to and value ultimately. Or as Tim Keller puts it, idolatry is turning a good thing into an ultimate thing. In other words, when we make a good gift of God, our ultimate hope, our ultimate joy, our ultimate treasure, then we have created an idol. And so Paul says, stop glorying, stop doing this with human leaders. They were given for your benefit, not for your worship. And really, there, there is a danger of us doing this today in our, in our celebrity Christian culture. There's a danger of us exalting a certain teacher or preacher so much that if they say it, well, then it must be true. That's ultimately making one into an idol, boasting in merely human leaders. They were given for your benefit, not for your worship. That's what he's getting at, Paul's getting at in verse 21. All things are yours, he says, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas. In other words, these leaders, Paul and Apollos and Cephas, they were given to the Corinthians by God as a gift for their spiritual well-being. 
To borrow an idea from John Piper, these leaders were given to you not so you would make much of them, but so that they would lead you to make much of Christ. In their pride and self-deception, the Corinthian believers were limiting themselves to one leader or teacher, attaching themselves to one leader or teacher, and they were depriving themselves of all the other good things God had given them through other leaders and teachers. What we see in this amazing statement in verse 21 is the abundant generosity of God in His sovereignty in working all things together for the good of His people, in giving all things for the benefit of His people. Look what He says. Verses 21 and 22. All things are yours, He says. Whether Paul or Apollos, or Cephas, or the world, or life, or death, or the present, or the future, all are yours. Consider the abundance of good teachers that God had given to the Corinthians. They are yours for your spiritual well-being. And how could we think about the Corinthians and the abundance of what God had given them for their spiritual well-being and not think of the own, our own abundance and what God has given us for progress in the faith, for maturity in the faith? For all of the junk that's been published on the internet, think about all the rich biblical teaching that we have access to because of it. More than any other country, more than any other generation in all of history, we have rich biblical resources. No other person throughout history in in this world has had access to what we have access to. And yet, how, how many Christians, perhaps how many of us are still languishing in Christian immaturity? We, we really don't have any excuses when it comes to this. There's no excuse. Now, it does mean we have to be discerning about what we, what we feed on and learn from and the teachers that we listen to. But there's so much good biblical teaching available to us. And this is a gift from God, but we should see it as a gift from God, something to be used for our spiritual benefit and not make idols out of human leaders. Paul says, the world is yours. Now, not, of course, the sinful mindset and wisdom of the world, but God's good creation. It's all yours. It's for your benefit that you might see the glories of Christ by whom everything was created. Life and death are yours, he says. In another place, Paul says, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If we keep on living in this life, we know that it means we can continue to bear fruit in righteousness, that we can continue to bear fruit, that we can continue preaching the gospel and serving others in love. And if we die, well, that's gain too. Because to be apart from the body is to be present with the Lord. Paul says the present and the future are yours. And we know Scripture says that God works all things together for good for those who love Him and are called according to His purposes. In the midst of your difficulties or trials, today God is working for your good. To those of you who are in Christ, God is working for your good. As you face troubles or heartaches or joys tomorrow, in the year to come, 
It doesn't take God by surprise. He's working for your ultimate good. All these things are yours. All things are yours. Everything belongs to you and is being used by God for your good, for your growth and sanctification, for your growth in Christ, that you might treasure Christ more, that you might love Him more, that you might boast in nothing except Christ and Him crucified for sinners. Now, understanding this helps us to do two things. First, it should help us to see and use things rightly. Knowing God has given us all things for our benefit, it should help us to use things rightly. It should help us to use God's gifts rightly, not turn them into idols. And second, it should help us to trust in God more fully. So understanding the purposes for the gifts God gives us helps us not to make idols out of them, but to use them for the purposes which God has given them for. And things always go wrong when you use God's gifts for wrong purposes. Some years ago, I was in my garage trying to fix something. I can't remember what it was, but it wasn't going very well. It may have been a lawnmower or something. I was working on it, and I started getting frustrated. And, you know, the heat starts to rise in your face. Um, sometimes machines just don't, won't do what you want them to do. They don't cooperate. And so I started using my pliers as a hammer, banging on this machine to try to force it into submission. Do what I want you to do. And of course, the next thing I know, the pliers bounce off the machine and hit me in the face right here under my eye and start bleeding. It was an inch away from a really bad injury. I was using this tool in a way that it was not intended to be used. And when we misuse God's gifts, we end up getting hurt ourselves and hurting others. We end up making a mess of God's good creation, of what He intended for our good. For instance, when we use God's gifts merely for our own pleasure rather than for God's glory, we hurt ourselves and others. When we use God's gifts of intelligence for our own pride, when we use God's gifts of money, to simply fulfill our own desires. We are hurting ourselves and we are hurting others. When we use God's gifts of suffering and trial to complain or to bring accusations against Him, we bring harm to ourselves and to others. When we understand, however, that all things are ours and for our benefit in Christ, then we will be able to make better sense of our daily circumstances. For if all things are designed for our good, then that reminds us that God is sovereignly working in the midst of our joys, of our minor inconveniences, and even of life's most difficult challenges. So have you considered this? Have you considered God's sovereignty in the midst of your minor inconveniences, in the midst of the things you're discontent with. Maybe something as simple as the daily headache of traffic in taking your kids to school or going to work. Maybe in teaching your children day after day. In not having enough money to be more comfortable in or Maybe your discontentedness in difficult relationships. Perhaps in preferences 
not being met at church. In the difficulties you face in your job or with your boss or with your employees. Haven't you realized that in all these things God is sovereign? And in His sovereignty, He is designing these things. He is designing all things for your benefit, for your maturity in Christ. And shouldn't this lead us to trust Him? Thankfully, God is not only sovereign, He is also good. If He were sovereign but not good, we wouldn't trust Him because how would we know He would do things to benefit us? And if God were simply good but not sovereign, how could we know that He would ever have the power to overcome evil with good? But since we know that God is absolutely good, And absolutely sovereign, we know that He has both the will to work for our benefit in Christ and the power to actually do it. Friends, do you trust Him? Do you trust Him to do you good in all your circumstances and through His gifts? The reason you can trust Him if you are in Christ is because you belong to Him. That's how Paul finishes out these sentences. He makes a quick change in his language. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours and you are of Christ and Christ is of God. We saw the path of true wisdom and the believer's possession of all things. But now consider the position of believers, our position in Christ. Those who are in Christ possess all things for their good in Christ, but they are possessed by Christ. In other words, they do not belong to any human teacher or to themselves or to anyone else. Rather, the believer belongs to Christ. If you are a Christian, you are the special possession of Christ himself. This seems to have been part of the problem with the Corinthians. Remember how Paul said they put it all the way back in chapter 1? Some say, I am am of Paul. I am of Apollos. I am of Cephas. In other words, I am of their way and of their thinking and of their teaching. This is who I identify with. But Paul takes a different approach. All things belong to you, but you belong to Christ. You are of Christ. In fact, it is only because you belong to Christ that all things belong to you. For in Christ we inherit, along with Christ, all things that belong to Him. So it follows then, if you are not in Christ, then you don't possess all things, for you do not belong to Christ. It's amazing to think, again, about who Paul is talking to. Remember, he's talking to professing believers who are not walking in line, by and large, with Their profession of faith. They're not walking in line with the gospel. If we were to judge them, we might call them Christian failures. They favor some leaders over others. They tolerate sinfulness that not even the culture around them would tolerate. When they come together for the Lord's Supper and the meal, they get drunk and eat up all the food before uh, the poor members arrive and there's nothing left for them. And Paul says to these Christians, you are of Christ. Remember who you are. You belong to Him. It's like He's trying to hammer into their minds over and over and over again their identity in Christ. 
You don't belong to us. You don't belong to your culture. You don't belong to anyone except Christ. You are His. You belong to Him. And this means two things. One, it means you are kept safe in His hands until the day of His appearing. And two, it means you have been given the mind of Christ. Your identity is in Christ more and more and you will reflect His ways, His thinking, His teachings. Paul expresses this same idea later in this letter in chapter 6. There he talks about how each individual is the temple of God since the Spirit dwells in them. And he says in verses 19 and 20, You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. So brothers and sisters in Christ, you who have turned from your sins and trusted in Christ to save you, you now belong to Christ. You are His. And no amount of sin can change that. He has bought you with the price of His own blood. And He is not going to pawn you off to someone else or re-gift you later on. As Jesus Himself says in John, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. You are of Christ and Christ is of God. Now this doesn't mean that Jesus is less than God the Father in His essence. Don't make that mistake. We hold that there is one God but that this one God is made up of three persons. The Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Spirit, but the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Spirit is God. So don't see it as a hierarchy with the Father being most God, the Son being a little bit less God, and the Spirit being the littlest God. Each person of the Trinity is fully God, equal in essence. But in the incarnation, the Son adds to Himself humanity. He takes on flesh. And He takes the role of a servant in His humanity. And He submits Himself to the Father in obedience to His will. And it is in this sense that Christ is of God. For He made His human will to be that of the Father's will in every respect. He humbled himself in obedience so that he pleased the Father in thought, in word, and in deed. And he submitted himself in obedience to the point of death on the cross. And friends, this is why we belong to God and to Christ. This is why all things are ours. This is why we will never be snatched out of the hand of Christ nor of God. Because Christ's work has been applied to us by faith. Christ's obedience to the Father and His joy in His obedience. Do you ever obey and, but you're not really happy about it? Christ's obedience to the Father and His joy in His obedience to the Father is ours through faith. When you came to faith in Christ, however long ago that might have been, Christ's goodness, His obedience, His righteousness was applied to your account. And just as Christ belongs to God, so now do you, his precious possession and his precious child. He sees you through the lens of Christ and his work. So sometimes I can get just a little glimpse of God's joy 
in us who belong to him through Christ. Just a little glimpse, but it is a glorious glimpse. Sometimes as I look at my children, I feel the joy that God must feel for his children. Parents, do you do that sometimes? Now, it's not all the times. It's not all the time you feel this joy. Sometimes you feel frustration or anger. You feel like you're about to completely lose it. But there are times when, as a father, I am filled to the brim with joy in my children. And this, friends, is how God sees his children who are in Christ. Filled to the brim with joy because he sees Christ's obedience applied to you. Only there's no wavering in God. Let us pray.